Good morning, Tyndale. It's so lovely to be back among all of you. The last time I was with you, I was in a much smaller chapel and on an older campus, and now I'm in this new labyrinthine space with you. It's much like um, a rabbit warren, <laughs> finding my way around, but it's a beautiful space, and it's wonderful to be among such good people. Um, I hope to encourage you today in what you are studying and in what you are doing. Uh, I want to thank Joan so much for inviting me again because she had mentioned uh, that you were thinking about the notion of our lives as stories and within God's story. And I think particularly at a liberal arts college and a Christian college studying the humanities, how important particularly thinking about story is. Perhaps it's good that the seminary students are on a break because um, <laughs> Madeline Langle said that Jesus was not a theologian, he was God who told stories. Uh, and I think often about Dorothy Sayers' comment that in giving us the Bible, God gave us his own autobiography. And in many ways, how are we to respond to that with the story of our own lives? Last week, um, I was able to, I was teaching a class here, and I was able to stay and, and listen to Dr. Taylor speak very powerfully on First Chronicles and talking about David and Solomon and the building of the temple and how um, the combination of being willing and skillful and what a powerful combination that is to work to the glory of God when we bring those things um, to God, to doing glory for God and bring those things together. And he was talking about missionary work and, and Mimi, his wife, sang so beautifully, I promise I will not sing for you today because that is not one of my gifts. Um, it's more noise than joyful. But, uh, but I was so particularly struck by her beautiful singing as well. I'm a, unfortunately, I'm one of those people who loves to sing but can't sing, which is a really unfortunate combination. Um, kind of like unrequited love is an unfortunate combination. <laughs> But it's the heart that matters, right? The Lord will know us by our hearts. Um, and, uh, and it is important thinking about how to be sent out in the world, obviously. Uh, but what I wanted to think about today, too, when I think about our stories and our stories within God's larger story, is also what I would like to term the localization of grace. Extending grace and accepting grace and living grace within our own families, our own communities, our own family units, or whatever that immediate family might be. For sometimes the Great Commission involves being sent out, but sometimes it involves being sent back. And that's what I would like to share about my particular story. For those of you who have read Surprised by Oxford or were here last year when I spoke, you know briefly that um, I grew up in a loosely agnostic household, uh, atheist and agnostic, loosely Catholic in some ways. My father ended up leaving us um, and having a nervous breakdown when I was young, and my mother raised us as a single mother, and I ended up working a lot of jobs and long hours and things while I was going to school, much like you are doing, and, and trying to make my way and keep straight A's. And I eventually um, won a Commonwealth scholarship to study at Oxford University, and it was where, when I was studying at Oxford that I um, met Christians and began to explore the faith and eventually became a Christian uh, as a graduate student at Oxford University. And so, 
what we often think about is the power of the conversion story as we see in Paul and as we see in Augustine and in that tradition. And, but we often don't look at the messiness of post-conversion. <laughs> and uh, here I had gone away and become a Christian in another place. Uh, and uh, it was in very much coming home then coming back to Canada uh, particularly because I went on to teach in England and teach in the States and marry an American. Whenever I came back to Canada, and particularly my hometown, it felt what Freud would term as uncanny or Heimlich and unheimlich. It was familiar and unfamiliar at the same time. Coming back and bringing this faith, and yet on the other hand, being with people that didn't know God or have a faith. Uh, and it's a very uncanny, dislocating, cognitive dissonance sort of experience. Um, I felt in many ways like I had pocketed God and brought him home and could bring him out as a conversation piece. <laughs> but God wouldn't allow himself to be pocketed in such a way. And I had to begin to think and pray about how to live as a believer in a place where I had not previously lived as such. It always struck me as interesting that God came himself with an address. People ask, who is that Jesus of Nazareth? He comes, he's born into a lowly town, into a poor family, into the midst of a census. And sometimes we can feel anonymous. Sometimes we can feel like we're a number or not even that. But to think about how God is using us, our stories, and how we are writing our story with him, within his larger one. I had decided to study uh, the humanities, and particularly literature, largely because of um, my love for reading and for books, uh, and also because of what Philip Sidney, the Renaissance thinker, said so wonderfully, that in many ways, poetry and the arts are the architectonicy of everything. For example, you can be a lawyer, um, but not able to write a poem, whereas a poet could write a poem about being a lawyer, or a novelist could write a book about law or whatnot. The arts encompasses everything. Now, you would hope that a lawyer could be a poet, but there might be some of that combination. But that overall encompassing, and I think again about Chronicles and that building of um, the temple, that building of um, God's architecture in our lives, through our lives, to also encompass not only his grace, but others within that grace. And so I was particularly um, struck as I began to think about maneuvering this sort of double life. And we know that the divided self is actually the form of psychosis. And if we try to bring those two together, think about living our lives as whole in Jesus, wherever we might be. I wanted to share for you Luke 8, chapter 8, 26 to 39, this, the story where Jesus restores the demon-possessed man, because this has become a really important story for me especially having um, come home as a, as a believer somewhere else, and then we moved back a few years ago to come and live amidst my family and do local ministry and, and love on my family um, close up. And I had shared with you very intimately last year because I feel really safe with Tyndale and I really believe in what you were doing here. Um, but you were so gracious in uh, listening to my story of my father and how we lost my father last year, and he had become a Christian just prior to that. And um, the beautiful memory I have of the last thing him giving me is a Bible. 
a large Bible full of pictures because he told me he thought I might like the pictures. <laughs> this is the story. <clears throat> when they sailed out, which, um, Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee, when Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. And this is one of the things I love about scripture among a million quadrillion other things. It's just like Bonhoeffer says, um, you can write a poem about the Bible, but it's not the Bible. There is something like putting your finger in an electric socket about scripture, it's something that runs so deep beneath its surface. And I love its encouragement of spiritual thinking, which is what all of you are developing in a particularly in education uh, at a liberal arts college in the faith. If we look at that demon-possessed, a demon-possessed man, what demons possess each of us? And he had lived in the tombs that might feel like your dorms right now, especially midterm or post-exams. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. I remember when I first moved home, I was driven into many solitary places because I came with all this enthusiasm, all this excitement about Christ, and I was met immediately with lots of different forms of rejection. And anyone will tell you that it is all relative, right? It's far more painful in many ways to be rejected by those that you love most dearly than by strangers. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? I love that. He knows. What is your name? And he replies, not with his real name, but by the name of those demons that have possessed him. Because he says, Legion. How many times do we respond to Jesus with the name we believe of ourselves instead of the true name he has given us, the one that will be on the white stone, as Revelation tells us? I keep a white stone on my desk knowing that the Lord knows my real name. But what name do we give? We often give the name by which our insecurities and our fears have written for us. And these demons begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. And when the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. I thought that was the freakiest story ever when I first became a Christian and was reading the Bible. I thought that was ultra creepy, really good Halloween story. Possessed pigs. That should be a movie. You know, pigs with like bright red shining eyes. Wouldn't that be creepy? When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. 
Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region, the Gersenes, asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. Remember, he does not intrude on our will. And so many times we respond with fear. I remember my father having gone through many years of mental illness, but in the last few years of his life, as he began to embrace um, the Bible and became a Christian and was living his life in Jesus, it was nothing short of miraculous that his um, inner and outer life became more organized. He had always lived either homeless or in shelters or in a very messy small apartment, and he began to clean and organize his apartment. Now, by no means is this an indication that cleanliness is close to godliness, because actually messiness, I think, is often closer. But there is a sense in which that miraculous cleansing order that I got to witness with my own eyes. And as a believer, I knew what was happening and I was trusting forward. Faith is such a trusting forward, right? It's thanking God before it's even happened and living out in that gratitude and gratefulness. But I saw that for many, they were afraid at what they were witnessing. And we often ask God to go. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. I want us to think about our various homes, the times in which we want to maybe entirely follow Jesus, give our entire selves to him, but that the commission for us might in fact be involved being sent back, sent back to a place that you knew before, sent back to a place within yourself, sent back to a certain localization of grace. There's so many places where scripture tells us to take care of our immediate family, such as 1 Timothy chapter 5, how the Lord sets the lonely in families. And all of us is born without nothing, with nothing, right? And we leave with nothing. And we're all set in families then. Our biological families, our adopted families, and our, our family in Christ. We're told to honor our fathers and mothers. What does that mean? Is that simply being head over the head with something that you might find absolutely impossible to do? Or is there a trust, a faith, a spiritual discipline in those actions of loving closely, of returning home, wherever that home might be for you at that season in your life? I want to share with you, uh, last time I shared with you a more personal story. This is a more professional story. I remember when I moved back a few years ago, uh, and <clears throat> I had left my academic position out west, and um, we'd moved to back to London, Ontario, and uh, I had just had a baby, a surprise baby, <laughs> who we had named for my father, and uh, I was not at the time looking for um, a position, and a former professor at my undergraduate alma mater, who I, um, who uh, I had had uh, 20, oh goodness, this is how old I am, 20, 30 years before, 
He had had his own first baby when I was an undergraduate. And if you remember my undergraduate, not saying any names, but you can probably put it together if you know London, Ontario, um, was where I had done my undergraduate degree among a very much atheistic department, uh, English department, overtly so. Um, I was not a believer at the time, and, uh, and I, I loved that group of professors very, very much. They had introduced me to literature, to a deep love of literature, to this important time in your college of thinking and the world opening up to you in so many ways. And um, I loved so many of them. There were uh, one or two key ones that later on I knew had faith and they shared that with me, um, or a few that might have been fence sitters. But for the most part though, most of them were of the atheist and usually highly antagonistic towards Christianity school. And then later when I had become a Christian, I'd shared with a couple of them here and there when I had come home, maybe a Christmas or a holiday, my faith, but it was quite a great deal of resistance. But this former professor contacted me and said that they were actually having a job search and heard I'd moved back to town and would I consider applying for the position? And I thought at first, I don't, I've just had this new baby and I'm, we're just getting back into local ministry. I'm not sure if I want to go back into a full-time teaching position at the moment, but I prayed about it with my husband and we realized, wow, what kind of opportunity is this, right? To sit with a circle of people that I love dearly and um, perhaps even have the opportunity to work at this place that I used to study, particularly before I was a Christian. And even to simply have the interview and conversation with them, to sit with these 10, 12 people, this small group of people, and, and uh, talk about uh, where I've been and what I've become and what's happened to me and, and joining them and what they are doing in studying the humanities, which at the root of that word is humane, what it means to truly become human. And so I agreed and I, I applied and I went in for the interview and I taught my guest class and then I came into the department interview and I we were seated around the table and um, <clears throat> uh, one or two professors that I say were quite warm, one uh, didn't come to the interview at all. I found out afterwards why. Um, one of my, one of the senior professors who had ha I'd had who had taught me um, postmodernism and was very, very overt in his atheism, he even tells students that at the beginning of his class, his course, was sitting right to the right of me. And I'm all excited to see them. I love them all dearly. I cherish them in many ways. I had been praying for them for years. And they had really put in me a root of this love for literature. And God uses everything, everything to pull us towards him. And this professor very first question out of his mouth is, how can your faith be so narrow? How can you believe in something so narrow? And then he proceeded to ask me all of these very, very harsh questions. Will you be proselytizing to students? We can't trust you to teach the Bible. Now, he taught the Bible and literature, which I thought was interesting. <laughs> but... He got, went on to ask all these questions, and a few of his other colleagues began to join in. And my first response was, first of all, such immense sadness and shock. Uh, and I, I clipped into hyper-professional mode, right? Um, I'd already been a professor for 15, 20 years, and I'd sat on lots of committees and done admin work, and I thought, okay, wait a minute, he can't ask me these questions. I could sue the pants off of him <laughs> for asking me these questions. I wanted to say so badly, I bet you didn't ask the Islamic chair you hired la last week these questions. I wanted to play the political game so, so badly. 
but something stopped me, something stayed me. And instead, I looked right at him, and I said, I can understand where you're coming from because I've been there too. I don't know, it wasn't me (laughs) that spoke. And immediately I saw this disarming happen. And of course, the rest of the interview went, uh, they continued to to ask lots of questions and um, it was like taking a lot of bullets and actually got to the point where one of the other professors who'd been standing back interrupted and said, you know, let's actually stop this and ask this poor woman some questions about her real teaching. I thought, what a novel idea. Um, and I came out of there thinking, oh, I know I didn't get the job. And I went home and told my husband, and I, because at the time, I remember before going into the interview, we had prayed over my resume. <laughs> and I'd said to him, I don't know if I should put my faith writing on here. I don't know if I should play my Jesus card. And my husband said, well, you know, that's true. I understand that, especially in secular academia. But is that who you are? And so I went ahead and I did share with them my faith and and I did talk about my writing and I did speak about the gospel in my interview. And I didn't get the job. And I remember uh, when I came in, I said to my husband, it was hard, it was so hard. I actually came in and I had a new baby, so I was probably hormonal in that too, but I started bawling because I said, I love these people so much. I love them, they've always been so special to me. And the interview was just awful, it was just awful. And my husband said, and this is where it's so wonderful to have fellowship, because he turned to me without missing a beat, he just said, let's get a bunch of bumper stickers that say mean people suck and we'll go out and put them on the bumpers during their faculty meeting. (laughs) But in all seriousness, he said, you know, you shared with them your story, who you are. A few weeks later, I got a phone call from the chair at the time, who was a new chair. He was this professor I'd had years and years before when he was younger, and now he was older, and he was the new chair, and, uh, and all the senior professors who had been really grilling me um, were basically, he was under pressure from a lot of them as this new chair, and he asked me if I would go for lunch. I said, of course, and I met him for lunch, and the first thing he said to me was, I'm really sorry for what happened in there. I felt like I was watching a an accident, a car accident, and I couldn't look away, but I didn't know what to do. First, please don't sue us. (laughs) But secondly, can you tell me how you had such grace under pressure? Which of course entirely surprised me. I didn't feel I had grace under pressure. I felt at the time like I was very hurt and sad and I was hoping that the Holy Spirit would speak on my behalf. And I was trying to hand over the anger and indignation and all my own pride to actually extend the love that had been granted to me to others in his name and to get me out of the way. 
And I shared all this with him. And he's the youngest of seven children from a Catholic family that had sort of drifted away from their Catholicism. And we ended up having this long lunch. And I ended up going out for lunch with him again. And then he invited another colleague who was an older lady who was about to retire. And she wanted to take her children, her grandchildren to church because she said she saw how her children were falling apart and she wanted so badly for her grandchildren to have that sort of grace. And from that conversation, from that round table, now I've probably been in touch and have lunch or tea or whatnot regularly in relationship with two, three, four of them. Um, one of whom has gone back to church for sure, one who still is asking a lot of questions. But I remember as I turned from this chair at the end of our lunch, we were leaving in the parking lot and he said to me, you had the choice not to share your faith with us, especially in this environment. And you know you would have gotten the job. So why did you? And again, it was not me speaking. It came from a place where the demons had been cleansed. It came from a place after you go through the tomb and come out into the sunlight. But I looked him in the eye and I said, I wanted to share the truth with you more than I wanted the job. It's important for us, particularly those of us who have the responsibility of education, who have the chance to think about God connected to our thinking, to have the opportunity to hone spiritual thinking and to live it, to respond to God's story with our own as much as we consciously can in glorifying him. Let us write our lives as deliberately as we can to the glory of God, while recognizing that nothing is wasted, nothing you are studying or doing or feeling that you've been lost on is wasted, and nothing lies outside of God's redemption. I am more and more convinced than ever as a student and teacher and lover of literature, that nothing lies outside the Christ story. And thank God, it doesn't. In Creed or Chaos, Dorothy Sayers writes this. Now, this is not just a pious commonplace. It is not commonplace at all. For what it means is this, among other things, that for whatever reason, God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death. He had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. 
When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it well worthwhile. Amen. Thank you for having me here today. God bless you. God's peace be with you.